Have you ever done something and then realized, wait a minute, I think I've done that before and I don't think it turned out too good? Or have you had a deja vu moment where you're pretty sure you've had that exact same experience with the same people you're with or you thought it was gonna happen? Well, Israel had this problem and they would repeat this cycle of being faithful to God and falling away from God. And God has had me camped out for the last several weeks in some books of prophecy and some books of history in the Old Testament, notably around the time of the building of the second temple. And there's so much there that relates to where we are now that if we don't know our history, we're doomed to repeat it. So we're gonna look at a little history today and see what God is teaching us about how we're to behave today in 2022 as Christians. Thanks for joining me. This is the Living Brightly Podcast with Elaine Cross. I am your host, Elaine Cross. And here we look at the political social impact of a Christian worldview. I take those two topics that you're never supposed to bring up in public, religion and politics, mix them together and form this ideas of ways that you can grow yourself as a believer, build your relationship with God, as well as impact the world around you. Here we live brightly, individually as a lamp, together as a city on a hill. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. Old Testament stories, Old Testament books can be a little confusing and they seem a little bit like a history book and yet there's also a lot of prophecy and other things going on and for the most part we read them we might study them individually but until God stirs your heart which God has done for me these last couple of weeks and all of a sudden I had this kind of aha moment so I want to share that aha moment with you And there's a lot of overlapping in the Old Testament. Just like today, there are leaders in many different fields of expertise. There are many different world leaders. So history can be written from the perspective of Trudeau, Biden, Kim Jong-il, right? There's different perspectives viewing similar situations and circumstances, things that are happening simultaneously. And that's how a lot of these books in the Old Testament overlap. And God actually had me start in Nehemiah, but I ended up in Haggai (laughs) because these all overlap. But we're going to start in Ezra. Okay, so these are Ezra and Nehemiah are both books that are considered history. They're kind of an account of what took place during a specific time from the perspective of the person writing the book, both Ezra and Nehemiah. Haggai is more considered a a book of prophecy, a minor prophet, meaning it was a short prophetic. It doesn't mean he was less valuable. It just means the prophecy was short. So they put several of them on a scroll together. Doesn't have anything to do with the quality. So Haggai is so short that it is compiled with two other prophets. There were three prophets at the end of the age. And after these three prophets wrote their portion of scripture, no one has risen to the level of prophet sense. So that God has basically been silent to that level of kind of direction and correction and preparing them for what comes next. 
So Haggai is kind of lumped together with Zechariah and Malachi. So at some point, I'm probably going to get to those two too, because this is all about the second temple and the building of the second temple. But before we can look at the building of the second temple, we have to kind of look at the destruction of the first and what happened there and why that might be significant for the building of the second and then the destruction of the second, okay? But we're going to start with this building of the second temple because that's where God had me start. So that's where I'm going to have you start. And together, we're going to kind of walk through this and put the pieces together. And hopefully you will get the same aha that I got. So in Ezra chapter one, it says, and I'm reading again of the New American Standard Bible 2020 edition. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation through his kingdom and also put it in writing saying that this is Cyrus, king of Persia says, the Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to rebuild for him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Now, wow. When we think about God calling someone to build his temple, I know you're savvy. I know you're smart. You think of David in the first temple. David lamented because there was no temple for God. He had this beautiful palace. The country was doing great now that Saul was gone and he was king and they were just settling in. Now, he was always a a king of war. He always had stuff going on, but Israel was prospering. And David lamented that God did not have a temple of his own that they were still worshiping him in a tent, okay? So he prayed and he fasted and he's like, God, I want to build you a temple. And God said, I don't really want you to build me my temple. (laughs) God said, you know, you're a man of war. You've got your calling and your purpose. And I want my temple to be built by maybe your son. So that happened. David then agreed. Who's going to not agree with God, right? So David agrees, but he starts preparing because God told him one of his sons would build the temple. Now, he didn't know exactly which one, and his whole family is a mess. He didn't really spend a lot of time raising adults. He kind of let them do their thing and and ended up raising a bunch of kids who interfought with each other, and there was a lot of jealousy, and there was a lot of whatever. Not this podcast. (laughs) Maybe another one. We'll see. But David knew that when God said one of his children would build the temple, that one of his children would build the temple. So he started to gather the raw materials so that when his son took over, which he knew was inevitable, he knew he wasn't going to live forever, that he stored up these implements, uh, wood, gold, material, all kinds of stuff to prepare the way so that when his son took over, the temple could be built. Sure enough, David passes, Solomon takes over, and within a year, two years, something, at most three years, we could go back and look, but I'm just off the top of my head. In a very short time, he starts building the temple, and Solomon's temple was beyond everything. 
It was so beautiful and huge and ornate that it was quite the glory. It was quite the statement that this is our God and and we hold our God in the highest regard that they built this beautiful, beautiful temple. And here we are, let's see, almost 500 years later, and God has asked, God goes to the king of Persia, not a Jew, not a priest, a Levi, a anybody, a prophet. He goes to a secular, non-religious king of Persia. Now, the timeline is not really clear. I've done a lot of digging. I haven't actually talked to any of my Jewish friends, which maybe I will do. But when I look at different timelines, there's about 100 years of wiggle room. Some say it's 430 years. Some say it's 530 years. I don't know. But let's just say this king is not a Jew. He's not of a descendant of Abraham that we know of. He's the king of Persia. And God tells him. And then he goes out and says, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to rebuild for him a house in Jerusalem which is in Judah. That's huge. So to me, that's like, okay. And I'm not sure where all this is going to go or how long this is going to go. And I'm probably gonna have to divide it up into a couple different podcasts, but I'm not trying to keep today's succinct, at least. If you think about the 2016 election, and there was this real division in Christendom, especially women Christians, or more secular which I wouldn't expect to be secular, but more secular-leaning Christian groups really supported Hillary Clinton because of the propaganda out there about Trump. Of course, we all know the news took a few clips of Trump, promoted them widely, and Christians latched onto them as a way to discount him and uplift her. And part of that was a passion to have the first woman president, Part of that was the brashness of Donald Trump, and he's brash. He is rough. He is, you know, I I describe him as he was a bulldog, and frankly, we needed a bulldog in the fight, and he was a, a spindly, irritating bulldog like you would find in New York. I mean, he did business in New York, so he was not your Sunday school teacher He wasn't your prophet. He wasn't your ministry professor at the university. He was a rough and tough businessman who knew how to get things done. But there were a lot of people that called themselves Christians that were torn. The the Christian view of Trump was very unsure. And Clinton was a known entity. Now, when Donald Trump picked Mike Pence, that put a lot of people at ease. That really calmed the nerves of a lot of Christians with respect to voting for Trump because they knew they were going to have a man of God who was going to pray for the president with the president, hopefully, in the White House. Ultimately, Trump won. And Trump proceeded to do a lot of things that were really good for our First Amendment religious rights and just for the world in general with acknowledging Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And the Abraham Accords, the peace treaties that they have established, which are changing the Middle East right now, even though there's a lot of the neighborhoods there that don't like it, 
There are Arab countries that have embraced the Abraham Accord and are working very well with Israel right now. Major, major progress. But in 2016, we didn't know what that was going to look like. We didn't know how that was going to look. And that's how I see this Cyrus King of Persia. He's not somebody that we would look to, certainly nobody that Jews would look to, to say, God has told me, God has appointed me, the king of Persia, this secular, non-religious heathen, to build him a temple. That's just, it's mind-blowing to me to read that. And the Bible is so cool because God is in every word of every page of the Bible. When you read it, he tells you something that you need for today in whatever you're reading. So I could read, and I have read these books before, but this verse didn't jump out at me like it has this time because I didn't need that little bit of information. And now I'm trying to share this worldview from a biblical perspective with you that this jumps out and goes, yeah, sometimes God really does use heathens to advance his kingdom because he said, the advancement of my kingdom will never end. Which means when my people aren't doing the job, I'm going to get other people to do it for me. Jesus said, if you don't, these rocks will cry out. If you don't, I'll have other people do it because the advancement of the kingdom will never end. And that's good news that should encourage you No matter what's going on in the world, you should be encouraged that the kingdom of God's expansion will never end. And that's just not the expansion of the universe, although that's kind of a object lesson for us. As the universe expands out, so does his kingdom across this whole globe. This choice that God made. So he told David, the person who is referred to as a man with a heart after God, who loved God who had great faith in God, who slayed lions with his bare hands. He defeated Goliath, who was probably eight feet tall and much bigger, much stronger with a sling and a few rocks. He is a pillar. David is a pillar of what Jews and a lot of Christians look to as the ideal, even though He sinned and he did all kinds of things that we would not encourage you to do, like what he did to Uriah, Bathsheba, you know. And here you have Jews under the oppression, the occupation of the king of Persia. And the king of Persia gets a word from God that says, God has appointed me to build him a house. Now, he didn't actually go and build it himself. That's how leadership works. Leadership at the level of a king and leadership at all levels appoints other people to attend to tasks so that those tasks get completed in a timely, useful manner at as excellent a level as possible. So God gives Cyrus this order, this uh, appointment, because he says, God has appointed me. So God gives him this appointment. He appoints him to this level to build him a new temple. And Cyrus doesn't waste any time. And he says, okay, all you people who are Jews, you can go back to Jerusalem. You can take gold and silver with you, take uh, equipment, take cattle, and any kind of voluntary offering to the house in Jerusalem, to God's house. 
So go take your stuff, take your cattle, take whatever you need and go and pour into building a new temple. So people did. And not only did people, but because of this edict from the king to get in the king's good favor, other people gave gold and silver and different things to help this process. Simultaneously, the king went into the stores that Nebuchadnezzar had because when Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the temple and carried everything away, he took all the articles, meaning all the the gold bowls and lampstands and coverings, all the stuff that was in the temple, Nebuchadnezzar took to his citadel in Susa, right? And he put this in a little closet, you know, packed it all away and ha ha ha, you can't worship your king because I've got all your stuff. And (laughs) so King Cyrus goes, okay, take all that stuff and take it back to Jerusalem. All those implements that belong to the temple of the God of the universe just take them back, give them, give them back to them. Just, just take all that out and give it to them. And it lists the things, thousands of articles, I don't know, 5,000 silver bowls and gold bowls and lots of different things. And they took them all to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And they did this almost like a census where they counted the people and they counted them by name and by family and by tribe. And, and they have a list of all the people that went and they have like 50,000 people who went back to build the temple. And then they got like letters of encouragement, letters to say, yes, they can take cedar from this area and they can take whatever they need from, from this area. Basically, they have permission to a, build the temple and to get all of the materials, all the materials they need to build it. So in addition to just saying, go do it, he says, here's all the implements for the temple. Oh, and by the way, here's permission to cut down trees and to dig up rocks. And here is letters to say, you other groups of people cannot stop them. Just don't even mess with them. This is the king's decree. Go build. Of course, it didn't keep people from stepping on their toes and getting in their way. So that's in Ezra. That's just Ezra, like chapter one, just part of chapter two. If you jump over to Haggai, and again, these are like simultaneous accounts because they're they're all talking about the rebuilding of this temple for the, sec- the second temple, building the second temple. So you had Solomon's temple. It was destroyed when Nebuchadnezzar came in and took the, all the Jews into exile. This is rebuilding that temple. So Haggai has an interesting account. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shetali, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, This is what the Lord of the armies says, this people says, the time has not come, the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet saying, is it time for you yourselves to live in paneled houses while this house, meaning the Lord's house, remains desolate? Now then, the Lord of the armies says, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but are not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but you can't become drunk. You put on clothes, but you don't get warm. And the one who earns 
He's put into a money bag full of holes. So he's basically saying, you know, the reason you're struggling is because you've got your nice houses, but God's house is in shambles. Now, this is in the second year of Darius the king. Well, in Ezra, Ezra 1 started with in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So Cyrus and Darius are the same person because Cyrus makes this proclamation. He says, everybody go to Jerusalem. So this is one year later. All these people have gone to Jerusalem. These people have been kind of freed from wherever they've been taken to, and they can actually return to the promised land. Yay, we're all happy. Woo! But they build their own house and they then they just kind of start hanging out. Well, God understands you need a little time to get your house together and get all those things going. But okay, it's been a year. You need to start moving. So in Haggai, and there are some discussions in commentaries and different outlets that call these different names of the king based on his um, presentation and his attitude. One is a real aggressive attitude. Another is a real calm attitude. And so there's different reasons for calling them by different things. Similar to how you could call me Elaine, but my kids call me mom. My husband calls me a lover. You know, we have different names for people based on their relationship. So King Darius and Cyrus, King of Persia, same thing. They say Darius is his name. Cyrus, King of Persia is kind of like a more formal title. And then we're going to get to another one. I can't discount this. I can't explain it. There's only one king in this whole area. The guy owns like 120 countries. So there's not two different kings that are doing this thing. It's the same person. And it's one year apart. The king in Ezra said, go back and start building. In Haggai, it's like, hey, you were sent back to build my house. Your houses are good. Get to work. Start building. Haggai really kind of lays it out for him and tells him, you know, you're not being blessed because you're not doing what you were supposed to do. So they start working on building the temple. And Zerubbabel basically takes on the role as leader in this. And it's, it's actually called Zerubbabel's temple because he kind of coordinates and he's the governor of Judah. Where Haggai is the prophet, Zerubbabel is like the, the governor of the territory. So he's the one who can say, oh, yeah, go cut those trees down and go get the stuff from there. And, you know, he's coordinating the whole effort of this build to build up the temple. Okay. So if we go back to looking at politics and looking at the Trump term, Trump was in office for four years. And one of the things that really hindered his progress in a lot of the things that he wanted to do was people within the Republican Party pushing back against him. There are a lot of people in the Republican Party that did not want to see Trump successful. They had a grudge that they were holding during the whole election process. They didn't really like Hillary, but they certainly didn't like him. He was too America first. He was too let's fix our own house before we fix the world. And he was too anti-war, pro-Israel, all the things they talk about, but they don't really do anything about. And he was there to work. Remember, he's a businessman from New York. He's like, let's get some work done. And that's kind of like Haggai. Now, Haggai is a prophet. And at this point, about a year into Trump's presidency, it's pretty clear that he has made a profession of faith. He 
has a relationship with God. We can't judge to what level or to what degree, but there has been some kind of connection there for him. At least that's what was made public. Again, I can't judge his heart, but I can certainly judge his actions. And a lot of the things that he did was very supportive of the Christian worldview, of the idea that America as a nation has blessed the whole world because of its Judeo-Christian foundation. And if the Judeo-Christian foundation isn't supported and reinforced, it will crumble and with it the whole republic of the United States. And this is kind of where Haggai is like, stop fooling around. You've got to get something done. The first two years of Trump's presidency, there was a speaker in the House that refused to allow debate on some of Trump's big issues of the campaign. So every candidate has these big issues and they're like, I'm going to fix the border and we're going to repeal and replace Obamacare. Do you remember that? Repeal and replace Obamacare because it is fundamentally changing our whole medical infrastructure. And the whole time the Republicans did not have the White House when Obama was in office, they brought this up all the time. They're going to vote. They're going to vote. They're going to vote. They voted like a hundred and some times to repeal and replace the Obamacare, but they didn't have the Senate. So they lost. It didn't go anywhere. It was, it was just a vote for show. When President Trump got elected, not only did the Republicans have the White House, they also had the House and the Senate. They could have passed it, but the Speaker of the House would not let it come to the floor. And that's the power of the Speaker. This was somebody within Trump's party standing in the way of him making progress on his campaign promises. And by the midterms, it got right down to the end of the term, like we are right now. And it came up again. And he's like, we're not having a vote until after the election. And I knew right then we weren't going to win. And it was never going to come up. And that's exactly what happened. We lost the House. So we never had the opportunity to even vote on it while Trump was in office. Because after two years, he didn't have the majority in the House. The Democrats did. And that's how this republic was designed to work. So that the voice of the people, the, the people can make changes and kind of rein in both sides. And frankly, our government generally does really good when one party has the House and Senate and the other party has the White House because they're forced to work together to kind find some common ground. Occasionally, you get a supermajority where you have the White House, the House and the Senate, and you can do whatever you want. Unfortunately, that's the situation where we're in right now. And I'm not going to get into the current administration. I don't have time for that today. But looking at this, God kind of comes in and says, stop fooling around. You've got to get some work done. And Trump only had that here and there. And he did get it with a lot of things that he did by executive order, but with some really important things. And those really important things were appointments to judges and leadership positions. And right now, the United States is reaping the benefit of those decisions. And not all of them have been perfect and not all of them have worked out the way we would like them to work out. But religious freedom is certainly stronger today because of Donald Trump, because of the cases that we've talked about on this podcast that have gone to the Supreme Court about religious liberty, that this government cannot make laws to confine and restrict religion. 
that you have the freedom to worship your God without the constraints of the government telling you can't. Because what has happened in the United States of America over the last 60 years has been the development of an anti-Christian attitude. Just like an anti-Semitic attitude, there's an anti-Christian attitude. In the town I, I live in, the local library has rules for what can take place at the library, right? You can't have, I don't know, drunken pot parties. <laughs> I don't know. You can't have some things and you can't have others. You can have a book club or you can have a sewing club or you can have other things meet at the library. The Buddhists can meet at the library because they're telling people about Buddhism that they don't know about. Basically, they're holding services as a way to show people their faith. Christians cannot have those kinds of meetings. I don't even know if you can do a Christian Bible study at the library and advertise it. (laughs) I haven't tried. There's this double standard. Oh, well, everybody knows that. Well, no, they don't. No, they don't. And society is evident in how it's behaving and how it's voting that people don't really believe God. And people don't really believe in God or trust God the way someone would who had true faith. And again, I'm not here to judge anybody. I'm just, when you live in a society where you get to vote for what you want and the vote is going the way it is and the outcry of the fact that the states are now going to control whether you can kill your child or not and they're mad, I have to say, "Hmm, I don't know. I don't know. So in addition to the people just being lazy in Haggai's account, where he goes to Zerubbabel and the Jews in Judah and says, hey, you know, you're struggling because you're not doing what God called you here for. The reason Cyrus, king of Persia, Darius the king sent you and allowed you to go to Jerusalem was so that you could build the temple. Now, stop worrying about all this other stuff and start building the temple and God's going to take care of this other stuff. So that's what they started to do. And they built a temple, but they kept running into these roadblocks. Now, when Solomon built his temple, Solomon's temple was huge. It was elaborate. It was beautiful. It was very craftsman focused. I mean, there were ornate, detailed carvings in the wood pillars that were like, I don't know, 40 feet tall or something. Huge, beautiful stuff. That was Solomon's temple. It took them seven years to build Solomon's temple. So that's a lot when you think of, they did not have backhoes. They didn't have compressors. They were cutting rock by hand. They were lifting it with a winch, right? It was hard, hard labor. And there were very, very skilled craftsmen working on every part of it. They had to weave the material to make the curtains and to... They covered so much stuff in gold, right? So they had to melt the gold and turn it into little sheets and put it over stuff. And yeah, a lot, a lot of work, okay? The second temple took three times as long, took 21 years to build, 21 years. Now this is in a land where the king has basically said, God told me to build it. Take what you need, do what you need. Oh, and by the way, The cost comes out of the treasury. It comes out of the king's treasure. So not only did Cyrus or Darius, however you want to say it, approve and encourage the building of the house, he said, 
you have got to use money from the king's treasury. Money from the king's treasury. The king paid for it. I mean, in addition to anybody could donate and people could bring stuff, but the lack of funds was not ever to be the issue. You could not use lack of money or lack of support or lack of anything to prevent you from building this. So in theory, it shouldn't take much longer than seven years because unfortunately, the second temple was nowhere near what the first temple was. It was smaller and less ornate. So it should have taken at least seven years or less because they kind of had a footprint in the first one that they built on. Although they did have to lay the foundation to make sure everything was level and, and all that good stuff. Okay. When they first got to Jerusalem, one of the first things they did, or basically from Haggai's prompting, so once Haggai started pushing them, they started doing the sacrifices. So they set up the altar, even though they didn't even have the foundation built for the temple yet. They set up the altar and started doing daily sacrifices. That really changed the outlook of the people working on the temple because it made building the temple real. It made building the temple valuable because they were watching every day as the priests were having sacrifices. And you know, and I know how important it is to us to see incremental change, to see some things happen that you know are instinctively taking you closer to the end goal. It's like when you're filling up your kid's kiddie pool and you spray your kid with water because they're just so excited to get in the water. But, you know, the kiddie pool only has an inch of water in it. It's not a lot in there to, to play with. So you squirt them with the hose and they run around and they get all excited more and more and more because they see the water going in and then they feel the water on them. And they're just really, really inspired to work harder and, and do it. Get in that water. I want to get in that water. Well, the workers were inspired to work harder. Just where I was going with that, to build the temple. So why did it take 21 years? Well, there were enemies in the camp. And one of the things that they had to do is they had to get the enemies out of the camp. So one of the first things that they had to do was to identify who were the priests, who were the Levites, and who were like the temple servants because there were people that were left from Solomon's temple. And then here, let's see, it's uh, verse 58 in chapter 2 of Ezra. So Ezra 2.58 says that the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants totaled 392. So there were 392 people from Solomon's temple. They're ready to serve in the new temple. Yeah, it had been 70 years. So it'd been a long time. So they were little kids or they were very old. But they were there to do it which really helps because they know how the process works. They had seen the process work. In the process of identifying all these people and doing this census per se, was that they had to prove their lineage. They had to show that they were Israeli. They had to show their lineage of their tribe. So they had to have some kind of documentation or some kind of proof. And I don't know exactly what that proof was but they had to show who they were to show their residency. In Japan right now, to be a citizen of Japan, you have to have Japanese blood in you. You have to prove that you have relatives that are Japanese. 
in Ireland to be a citizen, you have to prove you're an Irish descendant within like two generations or something. It's not a long time. And my dad could have done it. He didn't do it. Now, had my dad done it, I would be good because I would be able to jump off of his because he proved that he was. My dad never did. He's now dead. So now I would have to earn my citizenship by living there for like five years, but you can't work. Okay. You can't just become a citizen of a country when you have those kind of standards. And those aren't old. Those are contemporary. That's just two countries. There are other countries that feel the exact same way. So they had to prove that they were indeed Jewish. And for some of them, they just couldn't do it. So they got kicked out. And they're like, you can't be here because we are, we're trying to get right with God. And we have so sinned and we have so walked away and we haven't been doing sacrifices and we haven't done, we haven't been following the laws. We don't even know the laws. We don't even know the rules. But we know that you have to be Jewish and you're not Jewish. You can't prove that you're Jewish. So you got to go. Okay. And this was all because they were trying to build the temple of God. It wasn't like they were just trying to populate a space. They were trying to do a very specific task that required a very specific structure. And one of the primary responsibilities was you had to be Jewish. If you weren't Jewish, you got to go. So they kicked out several people because they just didn't know who they were. They couldn't substantiate their history. Now, the other cool thing about this temple, which is just a side note, I probably shouldn't even time to talk about it, but one of the things the King Darius said they had to have was they had to have musicians and they had to have singers because you can't have a temple without worship and worship includes singing and playing music. Oh, that was really cool. Sidebar, not super important for what we're talking about today, but it's one of those details that leaders take account of. Imagine if they got the whole thing done and they didn't have any musicians or singers or people that did that or were gifted in that. And you got a bunch of eh, sorry sounding people off key and don't know the songs, right? (laughs) We're going to take a break here. And I just want to say this Living Brightly podcast I do for you. I present a political social impact of the Christian worldview by focusing on developing your relationship with God through your belief, resting in him, your identity in him, and the gifts that he gives you, while lighting the world around you through honor, tribe, liberty, and yielding. And now, of course, you know that those eight words are an acronym for brightly. Jesus said, don't you know you are the light of the world? Don't put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, individually a light, together a city on a hill. And I need your help to produce it. This is a value for value model, and here is how it works. I, along with my artwork, my editing and administration, do the work to give you this unique take on the two subjects you aren't supposed to talk about, right? Religion and politics. With this valuable information covering growing in your relationship with God and pushing against the chaos of darkness so that others may know Jesus. And in return, you provide value in whatever amount that is fair for you. The only value I don't find fair is zero. So head on over to elainecross.com, make a donation, whatever value you find is acceptable, whatever fits your budget, and partner with me, produce this show. And let's get back to it. So they started doing the sacrifices, and as they went through, 
these people would come and they would try to stop them, right? So some of them were just infiltrators, people who'd come in and were not really Jews. And they were slowing things down. And a lot of them were disappointed, but some of them were just spies. You have to know your enemy tries to infiltrate your team to distract you, to destroy your progress, to lie and mislead you. And the Jews are like, you got to go, got to go, got to go. So those were the internal work of the enemy. There was also external work of the enemy. And outside, so that would be the Speaker of the House, right? The Speaker of the House standing in Trump's way saying, no, we're not going to talk about that. We're not going to vote about that. We're going to wait after the election to vote on Obamacare. Never happened. He never got to repeal and replace. So then there's the external tormentors and troublemakers and enemies, attacks of the enemy. And this would be the opposition party or the media or any other entity that can try to foil what you're trying to do. And with respect to building the temple, these were countries and regions around Jerusalem that did not want the temple rebuilt because they viewed the temple as a huge threat to them and as a huge threat to their position in the world, if you will. So they stirred up a bunch of trouble. A, they just tried to discourage the people. They tormented them. They were like, oh, you, they called them names. They told them they would never finish and they were never going to do it. And and as soon as they build something, it's just going to fall over and just really discouraging and, you know, trash talk, just trash talk. Get it all the time, right? If you try to talk about your faith in a loving way, people can still be obnoxious about it. People can still push you away. Now, of course, you can be obnoxious about your faith and then you just bring it on yourself. Sorry, Um, you deserve it. (sighs) But there's always gonna be people who will fulfill the enemy's role to discourage you, to beat you down, to make you feel stupid, make you feel like you don't know what you're talking about or how things work. Well, then what they did was they stirred up the government. So they're like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Nebuchadnezzar said that they could never rebuild this temple because, or let's just say, one of the previous kings said they could never rebuild the temple because this was a defiant and arrogant nation that would just, they wouldn't pay their tithe and their tribute to the king. They wouldn't follow the rules of the king. They would just separate and then they would wage war and they would cause all kinds of trouble and all kinds of disputes. So look through the records and see that there's a law that says they can't build the temple. So the king gets the edict. He reads it. He's like, okay, stop the search through the records. See if it's true that they can't work. Yes, it's true. The previous king had said they can't build the temple. So he says, okay, you got to stop the work on the temple until I make a decree that says they can work on the temple. So of course they hurried up and made him stop and torment him the whole time. And then he makes a statement or the the Jews fight back and they say, wait a minute, look through the records and see that the temple should be built. So he looks at the temple and he sees, oh, yes, there is a decree that says that the temple should be built. Okay, building can start again. This is the legal system, right? This is the constant harassing lawsuits that cost you money and cost you time. And they do it all the time. Big corporations, big government bullies, and currently the FBI use the threat of lawsuits and prison and just 
trouble through the legal system to keep you from doing what God has called you to do. I can only imagine what more Trump could have done for our nation, for believers, for Christians and Jews alike, if he did not have all these efforts working against him simultaneously, internally, externally, the whole nine yards. And it didn't matter what he said. One little thing would be taken out of context and blown up to be something bigger. I look at the end result and I say he was one of the best things that happened. Now, I think Obama was a great thing that happened to the United States because it really woke us up as far as how far the left was willing to go to turn this country against its Judeo-Christian foundation and its liberty and capitalism and move it toward communism and socialism and huge government overkill and totalitarianism. Really, that's the end result is that you have a dictator, dictator in chief. And then we got Trump who really tried to fix things, but there were a lot of people just didn't want things fixed. There were a lot of people just didn't want that temple built. Do not build that temple. Just do not build that temple. And they fought and they worked and they, they hammered at it day and night and day and night, and day and night. So this is going on for 20 years, 20 years. Zerubbabel is trying to build the temple and Ezra shows up on the scene <sighs> And Ezra shows up on the scene literally one year before the temple is finished because he shows up and one year later, the temple's done. Okay, so they work 20 years under all this stuff, internal, external, everything. And Ezra comes in and he's like, okay, we need to get something straight here. First of all, don't listen to those jokers out there. They're just trying to torment you. Like turn off the news. It's all fake. It's all fake news. They sent a letter to the king saying that they were going to, you know, sharpen their plowshares into knives and they were going to attack people and they were going to kill and all this stuff. And he's like, that's a construct of your imagination. These books are not that long. You can read these books. You can listen to them on Bible Gateway. It'll read it for you while you're driving. It's very interesting. (laughs) Yes, you're going to get a lot of names, a lot of names, but you're going to get these stories and and you can hear them for yourself. Literally, they say, they make this huge grand story up. And they're like, we're going to tell them this. We're going to tell them this. And Ezra's like, it's a bunch of lies. You're you're fools. We're not going to stop working. At one point, they conspired to come in and attack them while they were working on the gates, then working on the temple. And Ezra heard about it. And he told him, he's like, okay, you need to just be prepared. These people are going to try and come. And they were like, darn it, they found out. Sometimes you just need some fresh eyes to kind of oversee it all. So Zerubbabel is in the middle of it, right? He's literally the administrator of what's happening. He's the governor of Judah. So he's dealing with all the spits and spats between people and whatever. And he's kind of coordinating the build of the temple. So then Ezra comes in and Ezra's like this consultant. (laughs) This I don't know maybe a positive news outlet for Trump comes in and is like, oh, watch, they're coming at you this way. Oh, watch, they're coming at you. That Just ignore them. Just keep going. Keep going. Come on, you got this, you know. And Ezra helps them get over the finish line. And it's a fabulous thing to see this temple come together and have singers and musicians and priests and Levites and people who work in the temple and 
all the people who just came to help and they've got sacrifices again and just the whole thing is is coming together. So they just are so excited and are so full of joy. (laughs) And unfortunately, there's some people who are not quite as excited. In Ezra chapter three, starting in verse 10, again, I'm in the New American Standard version 2020. Now the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. The priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the son of Asheph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the direction of King David of Israel. And they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, his favors upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout of joy when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Yet many of the priests and Levites had their heads of their father's household, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy and the sound of weeping of the people because the people were shouting with a loud shout and the shout was heard far away. They just didn't do everything that they could have done. Obviously, this is still early in the process. This is only chapter three. This is only the foundation. But, you know, you build the walls on the foundation. The foundation was so much smaller than Solomon's temple that the people who had seen Solomon's temple, and some of these people had worked in Solomon's temple, wept, just wailed, heartbroken at what they were getting at the end of this struggle, the end of this being exiled and out of the country and you finally get to come back and you finally get, and you remember, they had the freedom to do everything. They could have made a temple twice the size of Solomon's temple. They could have done whatever they wanted. And this is the, this is the fear. This is the worry. You know, the bullies on the outside never give up. The people that want to infiltrate the church, the people that want to tear down our beliefs and destroy our Judeo-Christian foundation of the United States, win when we give them more space. And there's this thing going on in the churches today. It's this complacency and this detachment and this separation of religion and politics. Everything we do in life is impacted by the politics around us. Either you live in a dictatorship, you live in a republic, you live in a family, you live in a group home. It all has politics. You work in a factory, you work in a small office, you work as a tradesman. Every situation has politics. It's all politics. You can't live your faith without being intentionally aware of the politics around you. From the national political politics to the politics of church leadership and your work environment, to the politics of how you run your house and how you train your children to be women who love God and know that our emotions are deceitfully wicked. And men who know that leadership protecting the vulnerable that are around them, even if it means protecting them from themselves 
and their own drives and passions, right? Politics is everywhere. And looking at the politics of just this small part, and we're not done with this, we're going to look at a few more of these. There are enemies who seep in, and it could be your enemy just causing you to doubt yourself and second guess and not have the confidence and not have the boldness and not say what you know God wants you to say when he wants you to say it. You see that person on the street and you just want to say, hey, God bless you, have a good day. Sometimes is what God wants that person to hear, not what you want to say. And it could be something that benign to something as big as being asked to give your testimony at a small group or at church, wherever, because your story is powerful. It's a bright light in the darkness. It's what others need to hear, how God is working through you, how God is working through King Darius to bless you, how God is using the politics of work to increase your bottom line. Because God can bless us and does bless us in every realm of life. There are enemies within us, our enemy who attacks us personally, and then there are enemies around us who pushed out and judgment, condemnation and separation and fear. And you have to recognize it when it's just an attack and just brush it off and say, my God has given me this job to do and I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. And I'm going to mess up sometimes and I'm going to be great at sometimes and God's going to walk with me through it all. But if you turn to the left and listen to the fear and the and you turn to the right and you listen to the anger and you fall inside yourself and you listen to the self-doubt and the self-judgment, you'll not get anything done. It took them three times as long to build a temple, roughly half the size of Solomon's temple with a blank check because of the enemies within and the enemies surrounding them. I don't want you to have anything smaller. I want you to have more, as does God. He wants you to have abundant life. Because when you have an abundant life, your wick is trimmed and your oil is full and you are burning bright because you are the light of the world. He who is in you, not just in the Bible, not just in your memory verses, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Be the light. Push back against the chaos of darkness that others may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the Living Brightly Podcast. Thanks for joining me. This has been a very interesting look at the politics of the Trump administration through the prism of the building of the second temple. And God has shown me so much. I will be sharing more. But Trump is not in the presidency anymore. But the 2022 midterm elections are coming. And people of faith have got to be engaged because God gives us the government we choose in the United States. It's part of the liberty he has given us is the liberty to choose. And if you are not registered to vote, go now and register because time is running out. Every state has a different timeline, but rest assured it's somewhere around 30 days before the election. It might be as many as 60 days. 
So go register tomorrow. Call your Board of Elections. Find out what you need to do. Just confirm you're registered. And then in November, go vote. There's a saying, be the change you want to see in the world. Well, I'm not liking the change I've been seeing. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to exercise my liberty to vote for freedom, to vote for America, to vote to preserve the Judeo-Christian foundation that we have before it crumbles to nothing. Thanks for joining me. Till next time.